0: Let us pray. Our God and Father, we have expressed in this hymn a wonderful standing that we have in our Saviour. Were it not written in Thy word, it would be too good to be true. But we thank Thee that His work is perfect, and that one day we're going to be with Him and like Him, have access into Thy presence, and beyond that, words fail us, for Thou hast written in Thy word that it has not entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. But we thank thee that Christ is the answer, as he has been the answer to all our problems since first we realised we were sinful and needed a Saviour. We thank thee not only in salvation, but in service, and in the daily round and common task. The Lord Jesus Christ has his place. We pray thee we may ever Seek to give it to him. Once again we ask thee to bless our gathering and the ministry of the word and we especially commend to thee the recording and the witness that goes from this place as a consequence. Grant, O Lord, that the subject chosen may prove a a message to someone that shall set them on the right path, that shall keep them from distraction, shall enable them to just realise they have a calling and to seek to adorn that with all the grace that thou shalt give them. Thy children are faced with problems and they're growing daily. The country in which we live, for the many blessings we thank thee. But thou knowest, O Lord, better than we do, the course that the nations are adopting. And we ask thee for grace that we may realise a day of testing may yet be ahead of us. If it please Thee, may we be found faithful. Accept our thanks for this place open to us. No checking of us, no stopping of us, no inquiry. an open Bible, making it manifest to all who pass. We give Thee thanks for this privilege which is still ours. Now help us to use it to the full. Let Thy word run and be glorified. We ask it in the name and for the sake of him who himself is called the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, thy Son and our Saviour. Amen. This is the recording made in the chapter of the Open Book under the covering title Spotlight and is number 8 of the series. The subject I have before me, which I hope will be a word in season, arises out of certain experiences that have recurred for the last 55 years. (laughs) Now, we're not going to have a reminiscence as long as that, but it's it's to be expected, isn't it? If anybody stands up and makes a protest against a certain attitude and takes a special individual line, he will attract the attention of some and will be given certain titles. Well, one that was given to me was this, that I was a man of a one-track mind. Well, that's not a bad idea, friends, if the track is a good one. You know, the scripture says, and it's very, very plain Anglo-Saxon, I have stuck unto thy testimonies. O oh Lord, let me not be put to shame. There's a need for sticking to it, isn't there, friend? All the pressure there is that comes from one side or another to ease up on this and don't say that. Oh, it's been continuous. Right through. Up to almost the present time. If any man draw back, says the scripture, I have no pleasure in such a one. If any man put his hand to the plough and look back, he's not well placed with regard to the kingdom. You see, it's mentioned, isn't it, as though it's a possibility over and over again. Remember, Lot's wife. What did she do? She looked back. The look back was of course a symptom of something to do with the mind and the heart as well as merely turning the head. Our Saviour, when the time drew near, set his face to go to Jerusalem. They sought to turn him back. Nothing could stop him. As the Old Testament puts it, he set his face as a flint. And then the Apostle, when he called the church together at Ephesus, told them the bonds and imprisonments awaited him, he said, none of these things move me. Now no one would accuse the Apostle Paul of a man being so dense he couldn't feel anything. I think he was the most sensitive man of the lot and felt things acutely. But he said, none of these things move me. Neither count on my life, dear I, comes in unto myself. The one thing is that I have in mind is I I finish my course and the witness that the Lord has entrusted to me. Well, you see, the, the line of thought, if God has called you and me in any capacity to stand for and hold fast this wonderful truth in which we rejoice, it may do us good once in a long interval, to have our attention drawn to the need to put the prayer up, or may I be among those of whom it is written, I have stuck unto thy testimonies. And there be no shame there in that connection, as the scripture indicates. Now, with regard to this question of a one-track mind, I want to use just a little expression in three different ways. Should we turn to John, the ninth chapter, where we have a man there with a, he's only got one thing to emphasize at least, but it was worth emphasizing, apparently. John, the ninth chapter. The actual verse says this, he answered and said, of course he's answering something, we'll just look and see what he's answering in a minute. Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. Well, his theology was pretty bad, wasn't it? But one thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. he is a man with a one-track mind, with a vengeance. Everything was subservient for the moment to this fact, that he'd been born blind and he was a beggar. Now these people, you see, that were speaking to him, were not saying, oh, what a wonderful thing to have received your sight. They were badgering him because it was done on the Sabbath day. They made the Sabbath day such a burden that instead of a man rejoicing that he had his sight, they were telling him practically that he was very wrong. And they were getting at Christ through him. Well, this man, you see, the last man on earth to be able to argue with scribes and Pharisees with regard to the question of right and wrong and any theological arguments, he got no answer. They kept on at him. And as you see, the passage we read, it was an answer. Then is in verse 24, Then again called they the man. So he's been before. Yes, he's been before. Again they called him. And they said, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. We know. And he says, I know. He says, you may know a tremendous lot. These people could quote scripture. I don't suppose this poor blind man could quote very much. These people that were badgering him knew all about the Talmud and the rabbinical teaching. He didn't. He says, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know. He was a man of a one-track mind for the moment. One thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. Now I don't know who will be listening to this recording in the days to come. I'm only hoping that there may be someone who comes out of curiosity, possibly, to hear what this is all about, and this verse may be the word that will come to him like the clay that was put on a man's eyes, and he went and washed and came back seeing. Those of you who are listening, can you enter into the words of this man as your own heart's knowledge and experience? and say, well, there are many baffling things in the Scriptures that I do not know. I may never know. But one thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. The Apostle was concerned that the eyes of your heart should be opened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and so on. You see, so the opening of the eye is very, very important with regard to our salvation at the beginning and the consequences of it in our study of the word afterwards. You notice the progress of this man? It's interesting while we have this open. In verse 11, when they asked him the question, he said, they, they therefore said unto him, how were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, a man that is called Jesus. That's all he knew. He was a man, and he was called Jesus. Well, they went at him again, you see, in verse 17. And he makes an advance. They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him, that he hath opened thine eyes? He said, he's a prophet. Well, I don't know where he got that from, but he's making an advance, isn't he? First of all, he was a man named Jesus. And he's been thinking over it since then. This man has been sent from God. People's eyes are not opened like this every day. This man's a prophet. And there's yet another blessed thing coming yet, presently, after they badger him a little more. Shall we look at verse 38? Supposing we look at verse uh, 37. Oh, verse uh, 36. I'm sorry, we must go back a bit further. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Of course, this is the goal of John's Gospel. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and is an illustration. Only the illustration is based upon seeing, and not merely giving life. Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. Here he comes again, like unbelieving Thomas, my Lord. He said, Lord, I believe. And what else did he do? He worshipped him. And worship is forbidden in the scriptures to any but God. Worship him as Lord. So, you see, there was hope for that man. The more they badgered him, the more he seemed to grow. So, take heart, friends. Then there's another thing. And this is an experience through which I've passed myself, I've passed it on to you, to encourage you in case it should ever happen. It says, in um, verses 34 and 35, they answered unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins. And dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. They cast him out. Now, we're very glad to have our Bibles divided into chapters and verses, because if it wasn't so, we couldn't use a concordance, like Young's concordance or crudence. The only way we could designate what part of Scripture we're dealing with would be great sections, like you read in the Gospels, He spoke in the bush and that's referring to a section in the books of Moses where the bush was seen by Moses, but it doesn't give chapter and verse. But we have now. But for a moment forget chapter 10, and consider that it's reading straight on. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he's speaking to the same people. Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin, but now you say we see Therefore your sin remaineth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, and the point I'm wanting to get at is this, that in verses 3 and 4, it says, To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. He said, what's that going to do with a man who was forward blind and had his eyes open? Ah, that's what I'm trying to get at. The very same word that is used in chapter 9 that they cast him out is used in chapter 10 that he leadeth them out. All that's often been the case, friends. That when man has expelled somebody it's the Lord leading him out. And they don't ask for trouble, friends, but if it comes, it may come that way. Now, I said it came in my case. And sometimes a personal reference We'll help if we don't enlarge on it too much. I was associated with a witness in the very early days and I went into it ignorant. I was conscious of my utter ignorance of the Word of God. And here was somebody who was teaching and speaking and preaching and writing and he seemed to know the book from one end to the other. And I drank it in. He was also a spiritually minded person and I wasn't and I had a terrific discipline. All oh, it did me good. But there came a moment when I began to sense something that I couldn't put into words at first. For this particular teacher that I'm speaking about, said he'd come to the conclusion that the body of Christ had ceased on earth. And the only thing we could do was to go back to the primitive church and start all over again. And this is not a figure of speech I'm using now. In that meeting, for fifteen months, that's one year and three months, the subject of our considerations on every Sunday morning without exception was the Sermon on the Mount. Presently something dawned upon me. Later on in the same Gospel of Matthew, Peter makes it evident that he did not know that our Saviour was to be crucified. When our Lord spoke about his coming death, he says, oh, not so. And our Lord said, get thee behind me, Satan. How can I sit for 15 months being taught? And listen to the words which our Saviour said to people who did not know that he was to die and be crucified, shed his blood and be raised again. You see, something didn't quite click. The next thing was this. Is the body of Christ a meeting that meets in a chapel or a church or a mission hall? Or is it something which is spiritual and quite independent of whether you meet or whether you don't? I came to see that the body of Christ as taught in Ephesians was not a local affair. It was a spiritual one and it hadn't ceased. Well, that meant to say that i finished. I was not cast out, but I had to leave. And I went out like Abraham, in a sense, not knowing whither I went, for I'd been away from my own business that I had learned long enough not to be able to go back. I was in an awful fix. But I can look back now, can't you? Have you got any thanksgiving in your heart at all that this chapel stands here and is the centre from which goes out the great exposition of God's word? the rightly divided word of truth, the revelation of the mystery, the central place of Christ, are you? Yes, you say? Well, if I'd never been cast out of that meeting, God would have to have raised up somebody else to have started this, wouldn't he? Because I could never have done it there. So while it was a dreadful experience for the time being, chapter 9 says they cast him out, chapter 10 says he leads them out. And when he leads them out, he goes with them. He goes in front of them, they follow him, and they hear his voice, and they recognize him. So I say to you and to me, never mind whether you're called a man of a one-track mind or any other mind. If it means to say that you've seen a truth, and you could stick to it as the Psalm 119 says, and you do not draw back as Hebrews says, but you say, well, whatever the consequences are, I see this, I stand for it, That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? One thing I know. And from that, you go on. It gives you a glorious feeling of independence of the opinions of others. But There are other references that use the same expression. And as a result of being saved, there is also service. So, should we turn to another passage without... um, More ado, and look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. Wait a minute, I think I'm wrong. Can anyone help me? I wanted Martha and Mary... Or is it John? Dear, dear. Yes. I don't think it's Ah, yes. hey? yes. oh, I see. I was looking at the beginning. That's my uh, mind going wrong a bit. Z, forgive me. Oh, yes, of course. I was thinking it was the beginning of the chapter. It says, if you look back a bit, verse 38, that's right, thank you. Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. You notice it was Martha that received him. And she had a sister called Mary. So Mary was the sister of Martha. Not the other way around. And you'll find later on when the Lord goes because of Lazarus' death, it's Martha that's out there meeting him. And she was that character, and we need some people like that. She's got her place. Martha received him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, which also, now don't, so many times that also is forgotten, that also sat at his feet and heard his word. There are some who think that Martha is poorly treated by Christ. That she had all the work to do and Mary didn't do anything. She took that easy place and sat and listened. That isn't so. Mary also. But the difference between the two was this. We get the contrast in the next verse. Mary also sat at his feet and heard his word, but Martha was cumbered about much serving. Now, no service for the Lord should be a cumberance. It should be a joy. It should be a fruit. It should be a life manifesting itself. But to be cumbered by much service. Now you know there are some folks, even in Christian work, if they had a heraldry, they'd have a pile, scrubbing, brush and mop rampant. And you know there are some folks, I've been to their homes, And I look round the congregation and I'm not speaking to anyone present. It's all right. Up into their homes, which smells of soap and they've got plenty of washing powder, plenty of polish, might know your step if you might slip. But you see, there comes a moment when that can be more like a worship of God than anything else. When our Saviour went to that little house at Bethany, as a man, just speaking as a man, he found a wonderful welcome. And he would never run his finger along the top of the door and see whether it be dusted or not. I'm sure of that. And he never justified the idea of merely sitting at his feet and letting Martha do all the work. That wasn't right. Mary also sat at his feet, but... You see, the contrast is, but... Martha was covered. She was cluttered. It was spoiling. And so he said, Martha was covered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered, and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful, and troubled, about many things. But one thing, is needful. The one thing you've dropped out. Oh, he said, I'm not indifferent to the fact that you've been getting this place ready and that you've worked like a slave and I can see that it's so. But, he says, there's something more than that. If ever you get an opportunity to sit at the feet of Christ or let the thing go for a bit and take the opportunity there'll be plenty of time tomorrow and next week to catch up with that which is crying out for your attention. But the one thing that's needful to us in this life is to seize every opportunity that presents itself to sit at the feet of Christ and hear his word. But one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part. So it was a personal thing. She chose it. It wasn't just her character manifesting itself. She let Martha do all the work and she sat and listened. She chose it. And it was a good part, said Christ. So he wasn't condoning laziness or putting on to somebody else. She hath chosen this good part that shall not be taken from her. And so we have to sometimes decide as to whether this particular service or that particular service is to be chosen. Whatever happens, no service for the Lord can ever be cumbering us, cluttering us up. And the things to do with this life must be held loosely in relation to the things that belong to the life to come. Now, we're not putting a premium upon people being slovenly. Not a bit. But you can quite see that once again we have one thing. One thing, said the blind man, I know. We oh, knew a good many other things, but this was the preeminent one. One thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. One thing, said our sight saviour, merely has chosen that good part, which would not be taken from her, to sit at his feet and hear his voice. And then when he's gone on his way to do the washing up afterwards, or whatever else was necessary. That must be done. Take your share. But nevertheless, here it is. Now, the other passage to which we must turn is in the portion we had read in Philippians chapter 3. And you anticipate that already, I expect. Philippians chapter 3. You notice how the Apostle says, finally, my brethren, in chapter 3, verse 1. And then in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, finally, brethren. So even the Apostle Paul sometimes uh, felt a bit, he got to say a bit more than he uh, at first intended. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And he goes on to say that in comparison, if you are boasting in the flesh, I'll beat you. But that's not the point that we're, we're aiming at at the moment, it's further down. He said he threw everything aside that he had and concentrated upon the one thing that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death if by any means well now we must have a little investigation in the original if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead not as though I had already attained Now, if the Apostle Paul wasn't certain that he would be raised from the dead, what hope have we? If he wasn't certain that there was a blessed hope in front of him, that one day he would be raised from the dead in the likeness of his Saviour, surely we can't say we are certain about it when he was uncertain. Well, that should drive us to look at the original, and of course you know. When you look at the original, you find it wasn't the resurrection. It was the out-resurrection. And the word out is is given twice. The ex-anastasis, ectonecron, out from among the dead. And it has to do with an overcoming element. A running the race element. And after the moment, keep your passage, Philippians, but turn to Hebrews chapter 11 for a moment. This is all the various ones that have manifested faith after they were saved. And here he says, as as one of the samples, verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they may obtain a better resurrection called out as a better resurrection than that which is the result of salvation, evidently. They had something in mind that was better, and it's called a better resurrection. And when we get to chapter 12, it says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, that's these witnesses of the chapter 11, <coughs> not angels floating round you, let us lay aside every weight, That's a sort of, don't be covered, like Martha. And the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So there's a race, oh yes, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured a cross. Now that's the only reference to the cross of Christ in Hebrews. And the reference is, enduring the cross with the crown in view, the race before him. Now, if you come back to Philippians, you see that he has something similar. So, we'll pick up our reading and alter the rendering in verse 11, Philippians 3. If by any means I might attain unto the out-resurrection that which is out from among the dead, I stop again. And in one of the Gospels, there's a record of when the Lord took his apostles, Peter and James and John, and they saw the transfiguration, and they spoke of the resurrection which was to be out from among the dead. The apostles argued among themselves and wondered what that could mean. It was the word out of that puzzled them. Not that they didn't believe the resurrection, the Pharisees even believed that. But this particular aspect, so remember it's worthwhile patiently investigating so that you get the right idea. This is something better, something different. If by any means, that's not really just a simple act of faith, if by any means I might attain, and an attainment is something in front of you that you're looking and stretching out for, not receiving as a gift of God. The out-resurrection, that which is out from among the dead. Not as though I had already attained, neither were already perfect. And again we must stop, because the word perfect, to the reader of the original, would not contain the idea so much that we invest in perfection, but going right to the very end. Finishing. It gives us the word that our Saviour used on the cross. It is finished. And the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, his last epistle, he said, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith, henceforth a crown. And the word course is the word dromos. And it means a race course. Like the word hippo is a horse and dromos, hippodrome, means a race course. So we are not on the ground of salvation by faith, but on the ground of running a race with a prize in view. Keep Philippians 3 while you turn back to another passage which will illustrate this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 24 onwards. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. Now will you look straight over to chapter 10? Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all, see it says, they all run, but only one receives the prize. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptised unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They never went back to Egypt. They never cancelled the Passover redemption. But they never got to the promised land. They all, they all, they all, and yet some. So coming back to Philippians 3, he says, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. I haven't touched the tape at the end yet. But I follow after, I pursue. If that I may lay hold of that, apprehend, that for which I also am laid hold of or apprehended of Christ Jesus. He's taken me, and it's his desire that I should attain and run this race and win the prize at the end, and this is, that's the one thing I'm out for now. All the grace that he gives me i concentrate on this faithfulness to his word, sticking fast to the teaching, running the race, and as it were, being offered among those who are one-track mind people. He's a one-track mind here, anyhow. Brethren, anyway, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. So we've had the blind man. He said, one thing I know. We have the Martha and Mary incident. One thing thou lackest in service. We have the Apostle Paul. He says, one thing I do. One thing I do. And what is that? Forgetting. Now, I've got a very good forgettery just now, friends. As you see, I had to be helped to find a passage just now. But I, I desire a better forget, forgettery than that. You remember in the book of Numbers, after they came out of Egypt, after they'd gone through the Red Sea, then they began to murmur. And they said, we remember. What did they remember? The lash of the whip? The awful labour in the pits making them clay bricks? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, and the onion and the garlic. Tasty bits, weren't they? They'd left them behind in Egypt, and yeah. now they began to wonder. In front of them was the pomegranate and the grapes, but the tasty bits of the onion and the garlic is emphasized by them. Do you need that to be retranslated in modern terms for you and me? I don't think you do. And he says, that's the thing that's going to spoil you if you're running this race. Forget. Forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Now our version says, I press toward the mark. Well, it's a good idea to have a mark and press to it, but I don't think it quite means that. The white line in the middle of the road wasn't invented just a few years ago, you know, friends. They had a white line. And the one who was there sitting, watching the race, disqualified anybody if he stepped over it. No elbowing your opponent out of the way. And he says, according to a mark. And we've got to find that mark in the scriptures for ourselves. According to a mark. I press. For the prize. Now, one Corinthians that we looked back just now was a crown. This is a prize. Then Paul changes it again, a crown in 2 Timothy 4. A crown is one of the many prizes that could be won. There may be differences, I don't know. Whatever it is, it'll be a glorious thing if we've got something we can lay at his feet. I don't think we're going to sort of be trying on our crowns and looking at ourselves in a mirror up there and say, what a good boy am I, he's a fancy having this. They cast their crowns at his feet. Oh yes, that's a good sample of what we should have to do if ever we get so far. We don't know. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, according to the mark I press for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Or well, this chapter goes on after that to give them a little word of warning. And as we have a few more minutes, let's get, get the little word of warning because there's always been the antagonist. Always be the one who will trip you up if possible. Let us therefore as many as be perfect. Now, I think the rendering of that to be, keep close to the original would be, let us therefore as many as would be perfect. Not that you are already perfect, but you want to be in this running. You want to be like this, right. Be thus minded. And if any other thing you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rules, let us mind the same thing. Now he comes to the uh, important uh, warning. Brethren, be followers together of me. Now a man has to have a great conception of the truth and a real humility to be able to say that without damage to himself. But he has told us already elsewhere that he was a pattern for you and for me. And after he made a list of sufferings, which is beyond dreams, he has the cheek, I was going to say, to say, be ye followers of me. As I am of Christ. A man who could go through all that, he could not, need not apologize to say, I give you a pattern. So he says, nevertheless, where to we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as you have us for an example. So you have the apostle, you see, telling you that he's not left you without Uh, what the difference is between an n-sample and an x-sample is a matter for the dictionaries to solve. So far as you and I are concerned, you can take your choice. It all comes to the same thing in the end. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, the Philippian church was a very high standard of spirituality. And they would certainly never never have consorted with the enemies of the cross of Christ if it meant the ungodly world. But all we said, don't forget, in the Epistle of the Hebrews, they trample underfoot the Son of God and count the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. He says, if a person begins to walk in harmony with this world after he's become a believer, he constitutes himself by that attitude an enemy of the cross, for the cross won't permit it. So watch that you don't get tangled up with those who leave the narrow way, as it were. For many walk, of whom I've told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they're the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Now that word destruction is the word perdition in the epistle to the Hebrews. And the Hebrews has the two in front of you. It hasn't got a centre, it's got two foci like an ellipse. And the first one is, let us go on unto perfection, and the second one is, let us not draw back unto perdition. And the two words are in Philippians 3, perfection or perdition, although it's not so translated. And so the enemy of the cross of Christ comes into it here. It says, whose God is their belly, And that's in the epistle of the Hebrews, only it's put it this way. Esau, for one morsel of meat, sold his birthright. They're selling their birthright, those who are like Esau, whose God is their belly, who mind earthly things. Then he says, you see, our conversation, our manner of life, our citizenship, is in heaven. From whence, also, we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body. The word vile has changed its meaning in the course of days, and it doesn't mean wicked. It's the very word used of our Saviour in chapter 2, when it says, and being found in fashions of man, he humbled himself. He didn't make himself vile in the modern sense. So let's get it put this way who shall change this body of our humiliation. Change this body of humiliation, that it may be fashioned like unto his body of glory, according to the working, whereby he is able, even to subdue all things unto himself. I felt that perhaps it might be a word in season for someone to have these three aspects of the one thing brought before their notice. One thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. One thing thou lackest in service, if you don't take every opportunity you get to sit at his feet and hear his voice. One thing I do, said the apostle, forgetting the things that are behind and reaching forth, I run for the prize, not really the hope that's settled, but for the prize of the high calling of God, in Christ Jesus, well, or I must commend it to the Lord and pray that it may prove to be a word in season to someone, more, more than one, perhaps, who may be encouraged to be able to take the language of the Psalm 119, with which we started. I have stuck unto thy testimonies. If you're called a man of a one-track mind, be thankful if it runs along those lines indicated by the Apostle in Philippians 3.